Hello, I'm Peter Willis, a senior associate with The Resilience Shift, based in Cape Town, South Africa, and project leader for the Shifting Climate Leadership Project, which you'll shortly hear all about. In this podcast, my colleague and co-conspirator, Juliet Meehan, technical director of The Resilience Shift, interviews me about the project. We recorded our conversation at the end of June when the project was approaching its halfway stage. Here's what you'll hear us talk about. So we start with an outline of what the project is about, then I explain how I came to be doing this kind of work. We then explore what we mean by climate leadership and why we think it represents a quite unique type of leadership challenge. I then explain the two previous experimental projects we ran together and the methodology of reflective listening we've been refining along the way. We end looking ahead with some genuine hope to the human future and what may be asked of leaders in that future. Let's dive in. Hi, Peter. Lovely to be talking to you. Hello, Julia. If we could start by, I'd love for you to just explain to me what the project that we're doing together is, give a give an overview of it. It's a, an experiment. Uh, we haven't done anything quite like this before. We've done similar things, which we'll talk about, I'm sure. But it's an experiment to see whether if I engage seven climate leaders, and we can come back and talk about what a climate leader is, every week for about half an hour online in a conversation about their leadership and what they're facing, how they're coping and what their reflections are on the challenge of leading in this time of climate change, two things might come out of that. This is the, the, the experiment and the hope. The one is that they might find it useful in deepening and widening their sense of what they're doing and giving them additional perspectives and um, just a chance to reflect in a safe environment in the middle of what is always exceptionally busy, ongoing pressures. And the other thing we hope for is that in those conversations, they will kind of share insights into what it means to be a, a leader taking climate change seriously and how they are fathoming this out and and coping and so on, which we can then distill out and share with other people who may be facing comparable challenges now or in the future. So we're looking for those gems and um, at the same time hoping to help bring some genuine help to the people who are right up there in the front line right now. Brilliant. Thank you. And I think um, to come back to climate leaders, because I, I feel that's a really important part of it, that, that this is not leadership for the sake of, of a leadership skill or an executive leadership skill. But can you explain to me you know, what are they leading, what the role of a climate leadership and also how you're learning what is particularly unique, challenging? Yes. So we selected and invited them on the basis that they have either got a role that is very clearly uh, climate change related, or they've decided at some point in the past that in their role, and I'll give you an idea of what these are, um, they have decided that they're going to make climate change a major uh, theme of what they're trying to change inside their organization. So we've got at the one end of the spectrum, if you like, we've got someone who is a a very senior member of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the big sort of the apex scientific body. 
And so she is deep, deep, deep in the pulling together of the science on climate change and its impact. And then at the other end of the spectrum, we've got two participants who are senior executives within very large global consulting firms. And they're, uh, well, not only consulting in some cases, but they, they've taken on the challenge of helping their organization to make the transition into being fully climate aware and able to help client organizations out in the world deal with climate change more effectively and imaginatively and so on. So they're having to do the thinking at the breaking edge of their organization's work about how is climate change going to make this different or already making this different and what can we do uh, to make sense of that change. And in the middle, we've got a participant from a very large global NGO who's um, responsible for her organization's work in Africa and a a chair of a big national uh, agency in the UK that has a strong climate change mandate. So everyone in the seven wakes up and has to grapple with climate change and its implications in some form or other, and is answerable to a large influential organization for being, I think it's fair to say, in all cases, one of, one of if not their sole sort of apex leader on climate change as an issue. They carry a lot of responsibility, these people. I mean, that really has come home to me. Yeah, a, a lot of responsibility and in very different ways and different types of organisation from, I guess, changing or transforming business as usual through to mm. leading science in the IPCC. So it'd be interesting, Peter, to, to pick up about what's different and what's emerging as common themes from those very different mm. perspectives of climate change. Because I think we would recognise that seven is a very small data set of a very big population. But all of these all of these individuals I think are doing things differently. And there's a lot, there's a lot to learn and, and there's, you know, the, these insights are only just starting to be pulled out. So I think I think it, for me it's a it's a fascinating topic. And I do think genuinely one that if we had if we had a hundred Peters, we could do something like this with with seven hundred or a, or a thousand people. And I think before we get into some of the details of you know where what we're starting to find, some of the emerging insights, it'd be great just to, if you could explain why you sort of what 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 are you bringing to this and and why is the resilience shift and, and Peter Willis mm. working together on this massive topic of climate leadership. Sure. And I, I realise I've left dangling the question you asked about the difference between sort of leadership more broadly and climate leadership. So let's get into that after. I'll, I'll just sort of connect myself to this um, and then perhaps we can dive into that question, which is obviously important. So, well, I guess there are two two ways to answer the question, why me? One is to tell you about how my journey has got me here. And then the other one is to tell me about our journey, the resilience shift and 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 how we worked together over the last few years. I got interested in environmental matters back in the mid-80s when I was living in England. And my um, South African-born wife and I got became members of the Ecology Party, which is the forerunner of the Green Party. And we used to sit in <laughs> tiny meetings in um, 
houses with the curtains drawn, feeling very sort of secretive and brave uh, about plotting the, the environmental revolution. And it was mainly about waste and things like that. And rolling the camera forward about sort of 10 years or so, when I moved to South Africa in, in 93 uh, with my wife, who is South African, we came here and, and she's quite political. And I got involved in an NGO that was working on building the new environmental policy for the country under the ANC's government. And gradually it dawned on me that the environment was one lens amongst several that encompass how humanity's way of doing things, way of creating a life and feeling good about itself, it has really quite dramatic side effects, which we don't really want to know about. And eventually I ran into climate change. This was about in about 2000, that sort of time. And I thought, oh my goodness, as everyone does when they first really take note of climate change, and you realize, no, this is the big one. So from about 2002, when I was started working with Cambridge University's Institute for Sustainability Leadership, uh, running senior executive programs, I was teaching senior executives to grasp the importance of the wider sustainability problem that we all face and the instrumental role that business has played and can play, and particularly to help them get their heads around climate change, because I'm, I'm sort of answering your leadership question, because the thing about climate change is that it's not easy. It's incredibly easy not to see it or to see it, but misunderstand its importance. And so I think of it as a primarily a leadership issue in that a leader's job, it seems to me, in any situation you'd like to imagine, is to see further ahead and more widely and indeed more deeply into the causes of what's going on in the whatever it is you're leading. So deeper, wider, and further ahead, so that you can be useful when making decisions on behalf of your organization or army or country, whatever it is you're leading. And climate change is a stealthy problem in that you can honestly convince yourself it doesn't exist if you want to. Like It doesn't bang you on the head. And even when you do get banged on the head with a drought or a flood, you can persuade yourself that, well, that was just a drought or a flood. And so climate change is asks of leaders to, to basically understand what science has been able to show us, which is the cause and effect structure of the climate change problem, which defies everyday logic, because what a coal mine or factory or power station in Britain pumps into the air can cause coral death off Australia or a flood in Bangladesh and so on. So we're suddenly into a realm of responsibility and, and asking what, what does responsibility really mean and, and accountability, which we have been completely unprepared for in our history. To that extent, what I'm going to call for shorthand from now on, because we use this in a project, a climate leader. In other words, someone who, who has decided in themselves, I suppose this is my definition. I haven't thought of this beforehand, but if I were to define a climate leader, it's someone who has at some point in their past decided that they want to move towards and meet this incredibly complex, dangerous threat that is represented by humans 
having set about changing the climate without realizing it and carrying on doing it. And in the process of going to meet that, they have adapted their skills and their position in the world, like whether they're an engineer or a politician or a a scientist, they said, okay, well, I'm going to make this my main objective and my main theme is to wake people up and reduce the danger somehow that I can see lying ahead. One of the things that struck me from how you're describing climate leaders is it is a very different type of leadership. The the point that you made about understanding the science and the correlation with what we do in our in our jobs in our organisations with much more global effects that's hard. Bringing that science in and then transforming that into leadership. And and the other thing I was just reflecting is that all all of these leaders and individuals have purposefully decided to to lean in to this, as you said, somewhat invisible challenge which is very different. And this this might bring us on to talking about some of the things we've done together in the past. For COVID and the pandemic, for example, there there was no choice for leaders of any organization, country, individuals, but to deal with what was happening. And I know you being based in Cape Town, you know, experiencing the drought several years ago, the same thing. That That was a real, and this is our challenge, I think, working in the space of climate change it's not yet quite visible. And by the time it is, it will be too late. And, and how we yes. how we manage that. And that I think is a you know, leaders of organizations, leaders of companies, politicians, that's quite existential, that that kind of thinking and, and framing. So it is, it is, and it's and I I think far, far too few of us have understood that, that this is a completely different ask of a leader. Because the, uh, the, the other, so that there strikes me, there are two existential characteristics of the climate change problem that a leader has to grapple with. And the first one is the, the more obvious, which we've spoken of, the, this sort of invisibly growing threat, which doesn't bite at your ankles, but you know, because we now know enough and we trust the science you know it's going to bite a lot of people's ankles and worse up ahead. So there's that sort of dimension. But the other one, which has only occurred to me while being in conversation with these participants in the last few weeks, is that climate change is not going to stop. It's going to get worse into the foreseeable future, which if you think about it, we have no experience of that. A war, we know a war is going to end when either we all get slaughtered or imprisoned, um, or we win and do the same to the others. So there's, there's an end to a war. So that's a major crisis, but we know it can end. A famine, a drought, um, a, a storm, a flood, these are all things that we know they have ends. But we here we're looking at something which the science tells us, and nobody much talks about this, actually. You, you, you don't hear the scientists talking about that this is actually, we, are, we bought this thing forever in human terms. I mean, we could imagine... 100, 200 years time when things have shifted into a, a different space and we, we could say, oh, this is how it was 200 years ago. We, we're not going to be around. Nobody's going to be around. But then for our lifetimes and those of our children and grandchildren and so on, this problem is only going to get worse, even though we may do some heroic things in the next few months and years that will reduce or bend the curve slightly downwards. I think it's widely understood now that we've left it too late to bend the curve such that it would return to anything we remember. 
that's very important for a leader that success doesn't look as rosy as as success sometimes can such as leading an organization through the pandemic and into a what we call it a new normal or so 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 it'd be good i think peter before we get into this you know what we're really learning so far about the climate change just to talk about the the previous initiative because i think there is always a great analogy between between the pandemic and how it how it is still playing out and climate change but also an analogy that we mustn't be too trite with they're not they're not the same there's a lot that we can we can learn okay yes so we we, this is our third project together and the, the the middle one was the covid one since you're talking about that i'll go back pick up the first one the idea we had there Uh, which we pulled together in two weeks flat from sort of original concept to getting the first interviews going, which was bonkers, really. But that's how everybody remembers the beginning of the pandemic, that it was an extraordinary time of flat-out adaptation. Um, We thought it would be really interesting to have an ongoing conversation, a weekly half-hour conversation with what ended up being seven business leaders and five senior municipal leaders, sort of um, chief resilience officers, as it turned out, in five major cities on five continents. All of them in some way were at the front line of having to work out what on earth do we do with our customers, with our suppliers, with our staff, with myself, with my family, and so on. As this wave broke over, that was really where we discovered this dual value that they told us that it was incredibly valuable to have this regular calm weekly moment where they knew they were going to just pause and reflect on Phew, what's going on how is it going on how am i and what what am i learning about myself and the the role of leadership i've got and so on so that they found really helpful and then we found it incredibly interesting to pluck out of the stream of these conversations some of these wonderful gems of insight into what makes really effective leadership during a an existential crisis. And, and yes, that was a, a crisis that broke over us and everybody was in that washing machine as it tumbled around for week after week. So we were doing that from April, beginning of April through till the end of July, when we decided we would just do four months and see what, what happened. And that gave us the, the courage and the inspiration to do this project with a different focus on climate change. But before, in 2019, through 2019 and into 2020, the Resilience Shift partnered with myself and Victor van Asvirchen here in Cape Town, my filmmaking partner. Uh, And we had had this idea that the Cape Town drought, known as Day Zero around the world, because we very nearly got to the day when we would have to queue for buckets of water, you know, all four million of us here in Cape Town. So that was early 2018. And while that was all happening, he and I thought we really must capture the lessons out of that experience. And the way we wanted to do that was by interviewing on camera, in depth, over an hour, two hours, what ended up as 39 people who had, in some way, key roles in responding to the drought from government, business, civil society, academia, and so on. And that was riveting in that it, it showed how if you just put a microphone in front of somebody who's, who's been in the thick of um, a hugely challenging, frightening crisis, 
they out will come both their emotional recall and the, the sort of innate wisdom that surfaced for them during the course of the crisis and which they, they then happily share. And um, we, we ended up with a, a huge number of short learning films on different themes that came out of that. So that, that encouraged us to think that during COVID, we might again harvest some pretty interesting crisis-related, leadership-related wisdom. And I think we did. We, we, I counted, we had 37 discrete insights, which we wrote up. So what's changed over those three projects we've done together is that we've become, I think, more confident to just engage in conversation with people who are wrestling with something profoundly difficult. And whereas we had a one-off interview in a studio for the drought, these sort of patient weekly conversations set up a very interesting sort of internal process inside the participants. It started to happen already. We're now into the fifth fortnight. We measure fortnights because at the end of each fortnight, I and my editorial team produce a summary that we share internally with the seven participants of what you know, the key insights. And we're now into the sixth fortnightly cycle. And already several of the participants have shared with me how the fact that they know they're going to be talking with me in a few days' time has an effect on how they think about the leadership issues that are facing them. Because they they sort of, they've got me propped up inside their head almost. So they kind of know, they know I'm going to, ah, Peter would ask me this. About that. And they also sort of save things to talk about. And by the time they share it with me, they've actually, without realizing, they processed, processed it quite thoroughly. Yeah. And I think, Peter, you were saying right at the beginning that certainly this, this piece of work that we're doing now about climate leadership was an experiment. I think actually all three of those were an experiment. Something for me as a um, enthusiastic, interested observer of all of these is the cycle of initial not reluctance, hesitancy from the from very busy people to make this kind of commitment of time, which very rapidly fades away. And I think whilst whilst you're describing what we're looking at now and what we're learning now as experimental, it is. But I don't think any of us this time had any doubts about the as a minimum, the value of the regular conversations. Um, once they've started, and I, I'd be interested to hear a, a bit more of your, your own reflections on the value of the reflective time. It's something that I know you, you and I have had great conversations about in the past, but in, in what is a very noisy world, we have all these leaders and, you know, I would say almost all of them initially were like, it does sound great. I'm very worried about the time. And we're not asking for a huge amount of time. And it really makes you think, how have we got to the point where people haven't got 30 minutes or an hour to just pause and reflect? And, and if nothing else, and I think there will be a lot else, you know, there will be things that we can share that will help the, you know, the much broader cohort of leaders we are adding value to these participants and therefore their organizations as well by providing that thinking time. I've become incredibly interested in the, the mind and the way we think. And you give me a simple problem of, do I want coffee or tea? It's a sort of a no-brainer, literally. <laughs> 
I, I can I can literally make that decision without giving it coffee every time. How did you know? <laughs> but but the, oh, well, there, there, we could go there. No, we won't. But um, when you're when you're grappling with a difficult, complex, fast changing decision, which anybody who's senior in a an organization, large organization, is facing frequently during the course of the day, then there are shorthand ways of thinking, which are the things that get you through your day and so on. And then um, there is the type of thinking which cannot happen in the normal course of writing emails and sitting in meetings and getting stuff done. And my what I'm discovering, I think we're discovering through this process, is that you give intelligent, committed people who we shorthand with this word leader, we get with these leaders, you give them the space and the, it's very important we don't just give them a, a microphone and say, please go and record your thoughts for 30 minutes. So the, the conversational nature, the having a sparring partner aspect is essential. What happens is that their mind moves out of sort of its, its normal functional gears and they start to hear themselves think. And with the permission that I give them in a sort of a friendly, thoughtful, caring environment, they start to listen to themselves think, reflect on what they're saying, play with other possibilities. And we often have a good laugh in the course of these. Um, you know, I, It's important for me to set up a, a relaxed and friendly environment because I know we're going to go deep. And in order to go deep, they have to be playful. They have to be willing to what if and um, throw ideas they've held for a long while overboard to see what might fill its place and so on. That kind of thinking, which, you know, if we pull back a moment, the overwhelming way that climate change presents as a problem is that it's insoluble. You can tinker around the edges, you can fix little bits, you can improve a little bit here and there, but nobody has worked out how to solve it. And very, very few things that are being done right now are actually causing the incumbents who are still pumping out fossil fuels and still not recognizing it. Changing their minds seems pretty near impossible too. So when you're working in this field of impossibility, you absolutely, I think, need the time, the opportunity, the help to step back and think the outrageous, discard the thing that isn't working, and sit with the not knowing. All those things are features of a mind that is fluid enough to find fresh ways to address impossible problems. Uh, so I think that's really, for me, that's the game we're in here, is creating a fluid enough thinking environment I mean, it is a wonderful thing to be in conversation repeatedly with a very bright, educated, committed, principled mind. And I start from the assumption that there is always more that can come through this mind. And guess what? It does. Absolutely. And I think we'll move on to to some of the the learnings or what's coming out of these conversations that you believe that we can share with with the wider world. I think that that's a really important part of it. But just a couple of reflections for me about about the process. And I think it is strange 
how important the value of a conversation is. And if we all look at our calendars and I think much more in the, the home working, the virtual working, all of our face-to-face interactions are reduced a lot. Mm. And what's missing is conversations. And it's it's surprising how unique or insightful it is to just book a slot into a into people's calendars for a conversation rather than for a meeting with objectives with you know outcomes that we need to get to and actions after that certainly for me the people who I have valuable deep conversations with is significantly less from the home working and I think whatever the challenge is the value in that is significant would it would be interesting to to hear your thoughts also on the cohort that we're creating so the participants don't don't know each other but are starting to identify similar challenges but I think that one other thing I just just wanted to pick up on as a reflection because you were talking about climate change being insoluble the insights that, that we're hoping or already pulling out of this exercise they're not they're not the solutions. They're not the innovations. No. They're not, you know, there, there are people working in that space and, and trying to really change what's happening. They're about leadership and decisions. And that is a massively important part of the bigger picture as, as well as the, the new technologies, the, the actual solutions. So I think that's really interesting. And dealing, dealing with the recognition that it's insoluble, these participants, and I think leaders in generally need themselves to be resilient. <laughs> what, what we can't have is people who are committed to this, who are, you know, trying to change the world for the better, not being able to bounce back when there's an, you know, yet another negative piece of news. So I think the resilience of these individuals and how they can be agile is massively important. And I think, yeah, that, that probably leads us then on, on to some of the things that you're starting to see. I think, you know, the, maybe two or three things that are either emerging as common themes across all your conversations or something that's really one of the participants really made you stop and think and you know this this is the kind of not just how difficult it is but how people are what what individuals are doing in the face of that difficulty so that we can kind of equip people with the same kind of resilience on a on the scale that's needed This is so interesting because you nailed it uh, a few moments ago when you said that they're not coming up with innovations and solutions and have you thought of this way of saving water or what, you know, none, none of that. It's not about that. And essentially what our conversations hinge around is this impossibility thing that sits between us that they are aware of and um, it's that their their job on a daily basis is to help others in their field, whether it's organization or um, they're working out there with the larger public, to help people see what they are seeing and not run away from it. Because it is scary. This is another, I mean, that's something that we've talked about in many of the conversations is the uh, dealing with the fear and anxiety, which a lot of the data throws up in people, including in our participants. And so we're talking about how do you represent the challenge in a way that people can stay with it and work out what is worth doing from their particular professional perspective 
One of the the things that has struck me recently out of several conversations, it was for me, it was quite a big aha, was the the realization that the four members of the cohort who have been involved in and, and sort of leaning up against this problem of climate change for many years, I would say on, on average, it's kind of getting towards 20 years they've been um, at it, which is sort of same sort of time period as me, that in all of those cases, they've arrived at some kind of reconciliation of these two bizarre truths that they hold constantly at the same time and, and manage to work successfully from. The one being, we have to address this problem and do something better about it because it is a problem. It is a problem with horrendous consequences. And then the other one at the same time is realizing, even if we do brilliant, brilliant, astonishingly, uh, astonishing stuff that reduces our impacts and em emissions and so on, we are in deep trouble. And there's the impossibility of the situation. This is not a problem we can solve. But rather than run away from it, I've decided and I've made a, I've built a career out of ways of chipping away. And when I ask them sort of, you know, why, what's your motivation for sticking at that, even though you know we're fighting a, uh, what's ultimately a losing battle. I've never used that phrase before. It's rather grim, isn't it? And they, they said almost with one voice, well, if I can make any difference to someone who I don't know who's coming after me by persuading this firm or this city government to reduce their emissions, for example, then that's good. I'll take that. So that's, and that to me is an extraordinarily evolved and mature leadership position. It really is. And, and very, very different to normal, I guess, success factors for leadership. And, and you know, I, I think one of the, the interesting things, and you know, we're, we're doing this uh, under, the, under the auspices of the resilience shift. I mean, there's a lot of what we're talking about, Peter, I think is it's more than a shift in leadership. It's a very big change in leadership. And, and something that would be great for us to pick up on in, in future conversations is there's not only what this means for them as individuals, that we are in deep trouble, maybe the losing battle, but the losing battle itself is it's a depressing term to use. They're all managing to lead, to put their energy, their, their passions into it. And what that means for the everyone else in the organizations as well, because that's another, you know, that's a big part of leadership is, is who's following you. And I think yes, that yes. that's a fascinating challenge of how to get organizations of 10, 20,000 people following you on the basis that we're in deep trouble and, and, and that messaging. And, and as you said, some, some people have spent 20 years thinking about this. We haven't got time for everyone, you know, across the different organizations to spend their own 20 years coming to terms no. with doing and then lean in. So, so how you accelerate that? I think that's yes. something for a future conversation. I think it's, it's probably pretty much now, but, but maybe just on the, you said there was an aha moment about how difficult it is. Is there anything that you could, a real positive insight? I'm asking for an uplifting note, Peter, <laughs> to conclude the conversation on. If, yeah. if one yeah. thing. I mean, I at some level, I've I've been asking myself this for twenty years. Is like how how do I? Or in fact, it's more a question of why am I still enjoying life 
and optimistic, even though I've been aware of climate change and trying to do things that sort of address it all this time. So where I'm at at the moment is life is so much larger and more complex and mysterious than we understand. So we have gone and cooked up for ourselves in the form of climate change. And I just want to throw in there that climate change is the is the sort of apex goof up that we've created. But there are many, many more like sort of global inequality and biodiversity loss and da da da. The, the, the laundry list is well rehearsed and long. But we've gone and cooked up this polycrisis, as a friend of mine calls it, for ourselves, which contains within it the potential, I think, the potential for a kind of human emergence and an expansion of consciousness and, and so on, which we have no idea. And until the fat lady sings, if I might borrow, I'm sure that's, that saying is now politically incorrect, but uh, I grew up with it as a sort of, I don't even know who she was, but, <laughs> but you know, until the, um, until the last sort of um, wave comes and sweeps the last settlement of humans away and the last human pegs out, there is, I'm completely convinced that we humans are on a journey which will involve guess what, nothing new here, a lot of suffering. But I can't call what that journey is about. And I have absolutely no clue um, how this danger that we've built for ourselves um, is going to play out. Uh, but I have nothing but admiration and affection for those people who have decided, like these participants in the cohort, that never mind how dark the storm is that's breaking over us, they are going to carry on day by day, chipping away to see if they can't reduce the danger by whatever is within their reach, because they they know that that will help someone somewhere in the future. Yeah. So for me, it's um it's a journey that we we have pathetic tools for describing. Really, I mean, we know about the science, but we don't know about the the human. So a reflection for me, Peter. I think. Wasn't possibly the. the <laughs> it was an uplifting note, but, but with the words suffering journey, but which is I think is is true and maybe pragmatic. But you know there is a, a big thing in this whole leadership discussion about speaking truth and not you know not glossing over what we're dealing with. I think for me, what comes out of this, and it came out of work we did around the, the Cape Town Day Zero event and dealing with the onset of the COVID pandemic is the people. And I do think the more it kind of, well, I certainly kind of, I feast off these stories of great people doing great things. And the more stories we can have about that, you know, that is, I think that's why we're optimists because there are so many people in every level of every one of the, the challenges you were talking about doing amazing things. I, I think that's what we're doing. We're, we're focusing on the people we're supporting them and helping them. And yeah. we're also extracting these stories so that other people who other audiences who might be thinking this is really difficult, let's see some positive stories about what's happening. Like, okay, well, I can do that. You know, that that's going to that's going to help me. So I think there really is a very difficult, deep, somewhat terrifying challenge. There the positive story to me comes all about the people. And that is not only leadership. I think that's a really important caveat. That's that's a, a 
every every level of society. I would just shade that slightly by saying that the, um, I regard anybody who turns and faces a danger is some kind of a leader. A leader. Anyone who yeah. takes responsibility for themselves and others and beneficially tries to help more than themselves is is in some way showing showing leadership. This is why it's such a tricky word because we've tried to box it too small for too long. But I, I, you've reminded me of the wonderful quote from Paul Hawkin, the American environmental activist and poet, who said something to the effect of, if you study the data and don't see that we're in mortal danger, you haven't got a brain. But then if you look at what millions of people around the world are doing out of compassion for each other and for the earth, you haven't got a heart. And this is the paradox we are in the middle of. And I feel, thanks to the work that I'm able to do with you and the resilience shift, I feel so incredibly privileged to be in the presence of these people who are, for whatever reason, they've thrown themselves in at the deep end. Brains and hearts. Excellent. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Juliet. <laughs>